Hey, welcome to Being Creative. My name is Rick Leaf. As you know, I'm the host of this show, and today I want to talk about creativity. <laughs> I know, big surprise, right? Wow, where did that come from? What a curveball. <laughs> creativity, is it an idea? Is it an action, an activity? Is it a quality of an individual or an institution? What do you think? What? You want to know what I think? Oh my God, that's adorable. I love to share my innermost thoughts and ideas about creativity. Thank you so much for asking. Well, to begin with, I'm glad you're here. To me, there's always this element of when we're talking about creativity, are we talking about being artistic? And I don't think for myself, even though I'm a musician and, and uh, I, I never use the word creative and creativity as being related to being more artistic or painting or writing poetry or music. Um, from Human Motivation, Robert uh, Franklin, Franken, um, he says, creativity is defined as the tendency to generate or recognize ideas, alternatives, or possibilities that may be useful in solving problems, communicating with others, and entertaining ourselves and others. To me, that's way more along the lines of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about creativity. The, that... Um, tapping into our talents and our gifts and our abilities and our experiences in life and, and our education and taking all of those elements, which I would describe as your creative capital, and bringing that creative capital to whatever situation, uh, problem, um, opportunity uh, that you're faced with, that you need to find an alternative or a new approach. Sometimes we'll find ourselves needing to be creative because we're facing the same problem that we've faced over and over and over in our life. And that, that phrase about how if you want something you've never had before, you're going to have to do something you've never done before. And this idea that, you know, creative thinking is also lateral thinking. It's being able to um, approach something from a different perspective, from a different side, that could relate. It, and I feel like that's why creativity relates to everything. If you find yourself in a relationship, a business or, you know, personal uh, relationship with maybe you're trapped in a lot of conflict and you're just butting heads all the time over uh, whatever, um, your ability to see this um, situation or the subject from the other person's point of view to maybe find different ways of having that conversation so that you find your way through that conflict resolution so that there can be some resolution to that conflict. Like this is where, you know, team building, um, lots of times you're, you're trying to balance the the strengths and the weaknesses of different team members. And what that really requires is for people to be able to acknowledge their own weaknesses. A lot of people are really defensive. I don't know if they seem to have this idea that everybody's supposed to be equally strong in every idea. If they approach life that way, that's really sad because it's not remotely true. And if you think that that's true about yourself, you should really ask somebody who uh, works with you or lives with you if they think that you are uh, strong and perfect in every area of your life. I'm sure it will be a that conversation will be a revelation if you learn to shut up and, and hear what they have to say, because none of us are. And team building, you know, really great team builders and leaders are able to make that safe space where somebody can be like, you know, I'm weak in this area. You know, when I found a really great accountant, it was such a liberation because I just 100% admit uh, this is not my strength. This is probably one of my greatest weaknesses, understanding um, the whole accounting world and bookkeeping and all of this stuff. And and it was in a meeting a few months ago. I was with my accountant. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't get this. I'm an idiot or whatever. I think it was all this incorporation process. That was what it was. 
that I'd gone through and I was like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. I don't understand this. And, and uh, my accountant stopped me and said, you're not an idiot. You don't deal with this. You've never done this before. You've never walked through this process. So yeah, you don't know what you're doing, but you're not an idiot because you don't know how to do something you've never done before. And I was so thankful, you know, acknowledged right at that moment. I'm thank you're right. I'm not an idiot. And I'm, I'm really just um, expressing my insecurity and my fear and my, you know, and, and uh, it was a really good moment for me to remember, like, that is how a lot of people feel if they're going to admit any kind of weakness or struggle that they might have as if they're supposed to be... Um, you know, any of us are supposed to be strong in every single area. So I feel like this whole conversation around creativity and this idea of thinking differently and acting differently and creatively and innovation uh, is so tied to creativity that it's a fascinating conversation. And I, uh, to, to start with today, I was thinking, you know, what do we need to create in a situation to make it a safe and supportive place for a person to be creative in a new way or for the first time or in a way that's really going to require them to step outside of their comfort zone. I don't know if you ever thought about that or if you were in a situation like that before, but let's start that conversation with this story. So you know that I do lots of um, creative mentorship programs and development stuff, and I work uh, in the education space primarily these days. And uh, I was working on a project recently. So for me, the whole um, challenge of creating a safe and supportive space for people, for individuals, they could be students, it could be teachers, it, it could be whatever, who need to have that safe space to step up and be creative. What, what do we need? And, and in the last year here, I was working on a project and this young woman was brought in um, to this creative space and uh, it was a studio and uh, she was supposed to sing a song. And one of the guys involved in the process really, uh, I mean, he wanted to encourage her and he wanted to support her. And the only way he knew to do that was to act like we were at a sporting event. And he was just like, rah, 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 come on, I want you to get in there and step up to that mic and I want you to just let her rip and belt and I want to... <laughs> For everything I know about what people need of all different personality types and perspectives and levels of experience and age and everything else, screaming louder and pounding on the bleaches is not anything that I have ever found somebody needs to put themselves at ease and make them comfortable enough to step out of their comfort zone and take a creative risk. I appreciated the heart and the intention, but I could also, as a performer and as a producer, I've learned to read people and their body language. And you can tell when somebody is at ease. You can tell the way their eyes um, look. You can tell the way they smile or don't smile. You can tell the way they their body uh, posture is. Are they like got their arms crossed? Are they like sitting in the corner? Are they just wide open and, and opened into the environment? Um, uh, so I could tell that this wasn't um, liberating this person, this young woman. I also, there's a level, you know, when you want to ask somebody to step out um, and take a creative risk, instead of saying, just do anything. That is way too macro. That's way too big. That's way too undefinable for somebody who's already maybe trapped in their head a bit. Uh, maybe their, you know, their their chest is constricted and they're like feeling afraid. Whatever. They don't need do anything because that sounds like do everything. Uh, make it really easy, you know. And I do. 
um, slam poetry workshops in schools. If it's the first time I've ever been there or the first time this class has ever done slam poetry, one of the ways I like to do it first is like, uh, there's a writing exercise I would call, you know, some days life feels like. And I've learned over the years that, you know, for some people, we talk about writer's block, but for some people, um, the blank page is super intimidating. Um, they look at it like, I need to, you know, I don't know how to fill all of this. I can't possibly fill all of this. And it's like, no, you you don't need to. And for some people, it's like, well, I, I don't even know where to start. So if I give you a lead line, like, some days life feels like, you literally... Everyone, I want you to start your page right now, write that at the top. Some days, life feels like. And I'll be like, look, I don't care if you're 8 years old, 10 years old, 16 years old, 50 years old. However old you are, I know that you have had people in your life who have used words to tear you down, to bully you, to make you feel like crap, whatever. So if we were going to use um, some days your life, your some days life feels like, and I want you to tap into, you know what, I might even make this more granular even, I'd be like, some days your words feel like, if they were younger, I might even just make it easier like that, some days your words feel like, <clears throat> and I'd be like, if people have used words to hurt you, you know, how does that make you feel? How, how could we describe those words? Some days your words feel like, like, what are things that literally hurt us? In life, and I might say, you know, some days your words feel like a slap. A slap where? A slap to the face, to the cheek. Um, it stings. It leaves a mark. What? What? Did some days your words feel like a punch? Punch where? Punch to the gut takes my breath away. Uh, I had one student once it was like, some days your words feel like uh, grizzly claws and teeth tearing me apart. That student was from Northern Canada, probably was all too familiar with grizzly bears. Uh, somebody, one of my favorites years ago, some students said, <laughs> some days your words feel like Lego on bare feet. And everybody in the room groaned. That was in an elementary school. And I thought it was such a great line because, you know, I remember going to tuck my kids in after they'd fallen asleep and the room was dark and you wanted to just, you know, put the covers back on them or whatever. And you'd step on these jagged little, um, triangular pieces of plastic uh, as the room is just covered in Lego and it would be everything I could do to not scream out loud. So I thought that was really great. So I would ask everyone in the class, I just want you to write one line. One line. It starts off with some days your words feel like. And now I want you to think of a way that words hurt us and just describe it and just write one word. Just fill in the end of that phrase. That takes, that's very manageable. Even if you've never written slam poetry, if you've never written a story, if you don't even like writing, you can do that. Plus, I've given you a couple ideas. If you really don't want to do it or you don't know what to do, you can just take one of the things I just said. Then I'll say, but you know what? If you're 8, 10, or 50 years old or whatever, I also know that you've had people in your life who've used words to build you up and encourage you and inspire you, and we want to you know, tap into that as well. So I want you to say, but some days... Your words feel like. And now let's describe words that heal us, that help us, that pick us up, make us feel better. That could be your words feel like medicine. Your words are, you know, like fill the, you know, the world with all the colors of a sunrise. Your words, and just write one line. So you break down the creative step for somebody who's uncomfortable and unsure, and you just make it very manageable. Here's your lead line, write these first lines so you get your pen moving. Here, just write one line at the end of that. But now compare, comparing and contrasting and writing is a really uh, great way to learn how to use metaphors and, and imagery and whatever to just contrast. So it's like now write something with words that are inspiring and build you up and heal you. Now hand those in. So we've written for maybe three, four minutes. It didn't take very long. Now everybody's putting, you know, passing their papers into me, and I shuffle them all up so nobody knows what. That's all anonymous. And now I start to read them out. And I'm like, we're going to make a, a group slam poem based on everything that you just threw into me, that you just handed into me. And I'm like, look, 
we're not going to take everybody's line and write it down, you know, verbatim one after another, because there's probably 30 students in here and it's just going to, that would take too long. And that's not even the point. The point is we're going to go really fast. And I just want you to get the gist of how there's no real right way or wrong way to do slam. There's going to be your way, but here's how I would take all of your ideas and I put them together. Now, I write on the whiteboard. Some days your words hurt, you know, your words um, feel like, and we start putting that, you know, slap to the face that, you know, makes my ears ring and my skin ting, you know, tingle or, or sting and my fingers are ring. You know, I can hear what I'm trying to do. Um, and it feels like a punch and I'll just start reading them out and I'll read every line out. And there's a reason for that. I want to read the students' lines out loud in the room because slam poetry is... Uh, the combination of creative writing and creative performance. So I want them to hear words out loud in a voice because that's what we do. I also want them to hear their words out loud. And they're the only one that's going to know that this was them. And if they write a line that is similar to somebody else's, lots of times your words hurt like a punch to the gut. Let's say four people write that. And we've already heard that. Maybe somebody else wrote that. Now I read it again. I will say, you know what's great about this? This means that if you use this imagery, that there are people in the room who would instantly relate to what you just said because they wrote the same thing. And that's a really powerful use of imagery that will connect with your audience immediately. So it's a compliment. If somebody writes something that I've never heard of, your words feel like Lego and bare feet. I'll be like, you know, it's really cool about that. That's just such a unique take that you came up with, whoever that was, um, and it's really fun for our mind to be taken somewhere unexpected. So a compliment. So really what I've established is it doesn't matter. Whatever you've written is great for different reasons. And then we, so we'll just go very quickly and I'll read all of their negative lines out and I'll take maybe six of them and I'll add it to it. So we have, you know, maybe a, a three or four line poem about some days your words feel like, you know, a punch and a slap and a grizzly bear and Lego and whatever. But some days, and now I'll go through it all over and I'll read all of their positive ones. It feels like a sunrise, like a sunset. Your words feel like medicine. Your words are like a bandaid, whatever. Um, and then at the very end, uh, I like to usually include like a, what I want you to know. And it's like, if you've gone through days like this, if you've had experiences with words like this, what have you learned? You know, nothing lasts forever, um, whatever, some kind of resolution line. But while I'm reading these lines out and trying to add them, I'll often be saying like, how else could we put this? Or how does this line fit with that? And I want to get their voices. And they'll usually be like a two or three at the beginning that'll start to chime in. But really, we want this environment to be your ideas are valid, your ideas are important, your experience is important, your life is important. What does it all amount to? You are important. And if I'm asking you to step outside of that comfort zone, I'm not asking you to step outside of that comfort zone so that you would be uncomfortable. I'm asking you to step outside that comfort zone because what you have to say and how you have to say it is important in this world, not just for you. It will transform your relationship with your friends and your classmates, and that's going to spill out into the halls and it's going to affect your school. And as you all leave school and go home, it's going to have a broader in, uh, impact on your city or your town. And that's where I would start from trying to create a safe and supportive space. So this young woman, she's in the studio and it's like the guy is trying to encourage her to step out and take this risk and just like, you know, rah, rah, rah. And I'm like, what does she need? What? What does she need and what can I do? And I feel like, well, in that moment, pattern it. Lead by example. Do it first. Try something. Try something and, and make a mistake, preferably. <laughs> show, show her that uh, there's no uh, wrong way to do this. And so, you know, I grab my guitar. I'm like, because there was no song to work on. I'm just like, hey, you know what? Let me see if I can come up with something. And so right there in front of everybody in the studio, I grab my guitar with no, I'm not, you know, and just try to find some chords, some progression, 
um, making mistakes, laughing about the fact that, you know, my mistakes or that my guitar is out of tune and putting it back in tune. I'm just commenting out loud on the process and the feelings. What I'm doing is patterning the transparency and the vulnerability um, that's necessary to step out of your comfort zone to open your mouth to start singing and so I might try to like start humming I think I started humming like a melody and uh and go like was this work and what could we sing about and if she started to sing about something I'm like yeah that's really cool that's awesome what what could we add to that and so then we record us just like humming and singing and and just to me you know it it's this it's this um trying to take the pressure off perfection. I'm not a perfectionist, but I also don't want to like, I don't, none of us want to try and fail in front of our peers or anybody else. And so uh, you want to pattern the progress of like, hey, we might make mistakes here, but working together, we're going to get over there where it's going to be amazing. And, you know, in an hour from now, we're going to be able to stop and play back what we've got. And it's going to be amazing. And and it was. So I feel like, you know, uh, that whole, you we've all heard that phrase, you know, be the change you want to see. It's a great quote. There's two parts to that quote for me that are equally important. We're trying to change something. Something needs to change. Something needs to be changed. So what is that? What are we trying to change? What's our desired outcome? What's the desired result that we are focused on? Because if we don't know what it is we're even trying to change, then we're directionless. And most people that I've met that don't accomplish their goals or their mission or see their vision through, it's because they don't really have one. They don't know where they want to go. So they have no clear idea of where they're going, and they certainly don't have a plan uh, to get there. And that's the other thing. Other people, um, they do know where they want to go, but they don't have a plan. So there's no way to break down, okay, here's where I am, and here's where I want to go. And so in this such, this situation I've just described, you know, if we're, we're here, there's a few of us in a studio, and we want to record a song, but we don't have a song. Well, what do we need? We need uh, some music. Okay, so what do we do? Well, let's grab a guitar and let's try to find three or four chords that will give us the foundation for a chord progression. Okay, and then what? Well, let's try to find a melody that works on top of that chord progression. Okay, and then what? Well, let's try to find some melody, uh, some lyrics that we can sing that will fit within the time signature and the meter of the of the melody over top of the chords. Okay, and then what? Well, then let's record the guitar and the vocal. You know, it's like you just break down the process into these manageable steps so that it's not overwhelming. And we know how to evaluate whether what we're working on right now is what we should be working on right now. You got to break the steps down from the front door to your destination. If you don't, it's overwhelming and it's chaos. Oh, <laughs> I want to tell you the story about creative chaos. Creative chaos, honestly. I, I know that there was a time in my life when I also believed in this, I, I remember there was a point early in my musical career where I felt like my band would be bored if they knew every single song and, and the set list was all written out and they knew what to expect. So there was always one song there was always one moment of every concert where i would just start playing something that my band had never heard before they're on stage in front of an audience and i would start playing something new. and i thought oh yeah this sponson the spontaneity that's gonna really keep it fresh and it's gonna be amazing i can't believe they didn't drag me out into the back alley and lay the boots to me honestly like 
And, and I remember at one point somebody said something to me and I was like, oh, I'm just trying to keep keep you guys interested. And they're like, we hate this. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Who wants to be on stage in front of people trying to come up with something on their own? Creative chaos. It is... Uh, it, it is this illusion that the chaos is somehow freedom. I was working on a project not too long ago, and one of the main individuals in the project was like this, um, didn't have a plan. In fact, they didn't want a plan. Uh, they believed that this chaos was freedom and going with the flow and every whim and, and interest and rabbit trail was somehow the magic ingredient to creative excellence. And it's not. Um, you know, I've been a... Uh, I know too many artists, too many individuals like this, but because I've been a professional musician my entire adult life... I've spent so many years working with other musicians in different projects and tours. And for the most part, they drive me bonkers. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the artistic energy of creating new things and shows and sounds and songs. It's, I love it. But the extra step for being organized, for having a plan, for being able to break down the vision into manageable steps and, and then following those steps. Oh my gravy. You know, it's like some magical potion that only comes together once every thousand years uh, when it comes to artists. And honestly, there's a bit of a diversion, but I'm, I feel like this is what kind of really um, sets apart indie artists, independent artists from mainstream or professional artists. Like I remember uh, I read uh, not too long ago that Taylor Swift was talking about her getting ready for her era's tour and that she had rehearsed for hours a day for months before the tour started so that when she hit the stu stage, on tour each night, no matter what was happening or how she was feeling, that she'd have the show locked into her mind and her body and could deliver the show, no matter what. Now, indie artists don't have the resources to rehearse for hours a day for months, but most wouldn't, even if they could afford it. They don't think about their audience, about the show. They don't break down the set from the first song to the second song. Where are we going to go? What do we want the audience to be thinking and feeling and doing? Uh, I remember Dave Grohl uh, talking about one of his first tours in Europe with the Foo Fighters. And I, it's a long time ago. I think it was at a festival. And the, he was talking about how the European crowds like to dance where American audiences, like they were used to, just like to mosh and crash into each other. And he realized that they needed a, a song to open their set that these European audiences could dance to. And he started with what was a good tempo to jump up and down and just started jumping up and down and figured out, you know, 120 beats per minute was a great tempo for jumping up and down. And they wrote a song at that tempo for the purpose of being the first song in their set list. Breaking down a vision into a manageable step, you know, breaking down a set list into a manageable uh, plan. You know, if you're a musician or performer listening to this, please, I beg you, <laughs> give some thought to the set from your audience's experience. If you don't already, it's such a beginner move to focus just on us. You know, the songs we love to play. I use different tunings on my different guitars and I play it at different instruments. And so when I'm putting my set list together for me, just thinking about me, I'm trying to balance, you know, not taking on and off a guitar for every single song. But I'm trying to balance that with still making sure that the set takes the audience somewhere. And when I'm playing with Tribe of One, there's another element to what do the dancers need? We're, we're performing with dancers and they need to change regalia and costumes between different songs. And I remember one time as musicians, we put together the perfect set for us. 
and we showed it to the dancers and they're like, yeah, this doesn't work at all because I have to get all into this regalia and then out of it and into this for the next song. And then this is a different costume here. And this is going to take me an entire song. So, you know, you, you start crafting these elements that will um, take into consider everything. Now, as an artist working in education for 20 years, it's really provided me with a, a perspective on the environment, um, the, the education, the classroom, the school environment, uh, and what students need in schools to take creative risks. You know, I ask personally, when I'm doing an artist residency, I ask a lot of the students I'm with. I'm, I'm asking them to sing in public. I'm asking them to dance in public or to write and then get up and perform slam poetry in public. So I'm, I'm asking students to step out of their comfort zone. And if I want them to, and I need to create a safe place to do that. If I don't, nothing I say or do will matter if I don't do that very important first step of creating a safe place. And, oh, let's just take a minute. And I want to throw out something to you uh, as a question here leading into this next story. What do you think producing events and being a teacher and risk-taking have in common? Being an event producer, being a teacher and risk-taking. What do those things have in common? So what does an event producer have to say or do with uh, being a teacher or a school? Well, as an event producer, I, I've always found it really fascinating. Let, let's even just imagine it's a house concert and you're, you're setting the environment for your crowd. Maybe 40, 50 people are gonna come if you've never thought about it, it's fascinating to watch the crowd start to arrive, the audience start to arrive. Some people, what they want is a quiet corner. They want it where it's, the lighting is a little bit dim. Um, maybe there's a chair or a couch off in the corner. It's uh, a little bit away from the people, a little bit away from the music. It's a little bit quiet. That's where some people are automatically going to drift to. That's going to get them, uh, give them a space to acclimatize to the to the party to the event um that's what they're gonna want somebody else if the stereo is in the front room in the and there's you know it's a bit brighter in there some people are going to gravitate to you know they're going to want to stand right there in the lights with the music and talk to whoever that's where they're going to want and no matter how beautiful you set up a place, no matter how many little nooks and crannies and comfy chairs and beanbags and pillows or whatever, some people are going to drift into the kitchen. No matter what, they're going to be in the bright lights of the kitchen, standing there uh, where the food and everything's being prepared. They're just, you know, and everybody's different. They're looking for different spaces to get comfortable and the person in the kitchen doesn't want to be sitting over in the dark corner. And the person in the dark corner doesn't want to be over by the stereo where it's loud. Everybody wants something different to enjoy that space to the same degree. And, you know, I remember um, one of the first times I started understanding the psychology of creating a space for an event. Uh, it was in an art gallery. We were doing the show. I think we were filming a TV show, actually, at this art gallery. And so people were starting to come. And I had set the the music, you know, the background music, a little bit almost too loud. You know, it was like it was right up there. And I went and talked to the, to the um, other producer. And I was like, do you think this is too loud? And he's like, no, this is perfect. You have to have the volume of the room 
loud enough that when people come in and there's maybe only five, 10 people as the room's starting to fill up, for them to talk to each other, they need to talk in their full voice to be, you know, you don't want them to be shouting like you're in a bar or a club or something, but you want them to be talking loudly because that fills the room with noise and their laughter and their voices with even, you know, five, 10 people. And as other people come in, what they're picking up instinctively and instantly is that this is a room filled with energy and excitement and uh and and I was that really came back to me about 10 years after that first event I was hired to do this big gala event actually and and we were on site from like 5:30 in the morning setting up all of the stuff and and I was watching the the organizers that had hired us i was doing kind of more the the video tv production part of it backstage and uh, i was watching the whole element um the organization that had put on this big gala had decided to save and i i i wonder what maybe was it a thousand bucks that they saved by not hiring an event producer for the actual day of but they'd done everything else they'd spent thousands of dollars on the pa on the staging on the lighting the the conference center they had people there all day setting up this massive um lobby area with all of these decorations and all of this kind of uh incredible stuff really setting the scene and and as the people were arriving the the crowds there the doors are still shut i'm like walking around with the different camera people getting the different shots that we're going to need and the the energy in the lobby as people come they're all now all the guests are dressed up and everybody and they're talking loud and the energy is exciting and then this was the moment they burst the doors open and all of the lights in that conference room the bright lights they were still all on and there was no background music and you should have seen it it was like all of this energy and the excitement from the lobby everybody comes pouring in and it felt like a library there was like no ambiance there was no energy and everybody's voices they all started whispering they all stopped talking loudly and excitedly they went at sound it was kind of set up like uh the golden globes or something where people are all sitting at these big tables at this gala so they all went and sat at these different tables and it was like a library. It was like people were talking really quietly. You could barely hear them. It sounded like this little murmur. And uh, it was all because they didn't have an event producer who had thought through every element of what they needed. And I just thought, wow. I mean, eventually, 15, 20 minutes later, somebody cues in from the organization. I'm like, wow, what's, what, how come there's no music? Oh, well, like, so then somebody runs out to their vehicle and they get like a CD or something. So they start playing uh, some country music and it's like, and then eventually 10 minutes later, somebody's like, oh yeah, the lights are pretty like bright. Why don't we like dim those a bit? Like half hour into the event and they never really did recover from that. And so it's like event producing. I find it really fascinating because I'm thinking about what does every single person need? What are those, who are those people who need the dark corners, the dimly lit corners that are going to make them feel comfortable? Where can they go? Have I set that up for them? And where is the space for those people who like the bright lights and the loud music? And where is the, you know, where are these opportunities for people to engage with my, <clears throat> my event? And I've, I approach that the same way, you know, lots of times with classrooms. There are some students who are looking for a quiet corner and a place to get comfortable every single morning. Maybe their life at home is chaotic, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's just who they are. But some people, some students are going to want that quiet place to kind of get organized and centered. And others, man, they, they're arriving at school, they're ready for the 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 loudness, the, the lots of sound and activity and the bright lights, they're ready to get going. And I've learned that a lot of teachers 
recognize that their students need different things. And I love watching how they approach that. Sometimes it's like we're starting with five minutes of quiet reading or five minutes on your iPad or these guys are, you know, you're allowed to be in this part of the room um, doing something collaboratively together. It's like, it's really important. There's no one right way, but really it all comes down to creating that safe and supportive environment that is going to put the person at ease Make them comfortable enough that when you start asking things of them, asking them to try something new, asking them to volunteer an idea, to try something they're not sure they're going to succeed at, that they're in a space that supports them for taking that step. But along comes somebody like myself, and I'm going to come in to your class, and I'm going to ask you to either work on a song, or work on slam poetry. Apart from the physical nature of the lights and the brightness and the volume, what makes a classroom really toxic for creativity and what can you do about it? Let me tell you this story. Somebody laughs at you. That could be enough. Somebody laughs at you, you uh, offer a line for a slam poem or a song and somebody giggles, makes fun of you, says, ah, it's stupid. <laughs> That's going to kill the room. That is going to kill the creativity in the room, not just for the person who was laughed at, but for everybody else sitting there with a thought or idea that they were about to share and they see, oh man, if I open my mouth and I share an idea, they might make fun of me. I'm not going to do that. So if I want, and I do, want students to take creative risks and I want them to have that experience about how much fun it can be, what can I do if I come into a class or an environment and it's not safe? And this happens, of course, all the time. And I, again, because I've done it long enough, I can recognize almost immediately who is making this environment unsafe. And what can you do about it? Now, I've learned that the majority of people who are undermining the safety of, a, of, a, of an environment and making it toxic, they themselves are acting out of their insecurity. A student who thinks that they're better than everybody else is proud and Pride might be overbearing confidence in oneself, so they're likely to be ungenerous or uncomplimentary because they think that uh, they're better than everybody else, but that's not anyone else's problem really but theirs. It's the insecure student who sees everyone else's success coming at their expense. That's that's why they can't just tune out and daydream. I used to say that, <laughs> why can't you just like go to your happy place, just like space out and leave the rest of us alone? I either used to say that <laughs> or feel that. And the reason they can is because the success or the willingness of others around them to take a risk and step out and write something, sing something or slam something and get praise and attention or recognition in any way pushes their buttons of insecurity. And so even though it has nothing to do with them, they make it so that it has everything to do with them. And instead of rising to the occasion and stepping out themselves, being inspired to step out and try, they make a point of trying to shut everyone else down so that no one succeeds and then nobody like then they don't have to feel bad so as the creative lead trying to create a safe supportive space i have to start there and i do i often will get the class writing something and i'll go over to that student and see if i can make a connection maybe set them at ease, maybe encourage them that I value their voice and their perspective. I try to help them overcome their biggest hurdle, which is their own sense of insecurity. And I'm just like, hey, man, like I, I remember one kid, I was just like, hey, do you, you, have you written anything? No, I can't do this. Well, really? Why not? Oh, I can't write. Uh, we were working on slam poetry. He's like, I can't write <clears throat> mushy romantic crap. 
And I'm like, why would you want to do that? I'm like, good. I, I don't, I hate mushy romantic crap too. Like, why would you write that? Like, and we just started, I was laughing and I don't know if he thought I would probably thought I would be offended. Um, by him saying that, you know, slam poetry was stupid and mushy romantic crap poetry is stupid. Um, so in that, we just, I agreed with him and made it seem like he was being really funny and it was really great. And I'm like, so don't write that. What, what do you have to say? Because what you have to say is important. So lots of times this works, but what if it doesn't? Then what do you do? Because that's difficult, right? It's all in real time. You got 30 students in this class. You don't have time for a counseling session for this one student or these three students. So for me, I love telling stories and it's easy for me to frame ideas into stories. So uh, if you've listened to this podcast before, I'm sure I've told the story of the the student, um, I don't know, he was an elementary age student and he really wanted to share his poem in class one day as we started writing and it was the time for them to start sharing and I said, who would like to share their slam? And this student put up his hand and I said, let's welcome the next poet to the stage and we're all clapping and cheering. This student comes to the front and he starts to read and three or four lines into his poem, he lost his place and immediately, all the confidence, all the joy, all the excitement about sharing his poetry just ease, evaporated. You could just see it. And all of a sudden, he's staring at this page, can't find his place. All of the fear, all of the insecurity, all of the... It just came crashing down on him, and he just put his head down and just got overwhelmed and started to cry. And I quickly moved on, so, you know, to not... Uh, embarrass him the teacher kind of swooped in wonderfully and just said hey just go sit in the hall and just collect yourself it's all right and I went and talked to that student now you know I finished up the lesson I went and as I was leaving the class he was still sitting on the floor outside the room so I just sat down beside him and I was like hey man uh, I told him the story about you know when I started playing drums in a rock band when I was like 18 or 19 years old uh, every time we were going to have a show I would start feeling sick around supper time and uh, I would always think, oh, no, I'm coming down with the flu or I'm getting sick or maybe I'm not going to be able to do the show tonight. And then eventually I realized, oh, this isn't sickness. This is just nerves. I'm sick hours before the show. And once I realized that, then my brain was like, oh, it's just nerves. And it <laughs> translated it from feeling sick into giggling. And so I would just giggle. And so I'd be setting on my drum kit probably for years. <laughs> <laughs> walking in looking like a band you know wearing all this like black and chains and and everything else and and setting up my drum kit giggling away because I'm super nervous and then we had this bass player we hired a new bass player uh for a while and, and he her first very first gig he's driving out to the first show he lived about an hour away and he'd had car troubles, got like a flat tire or something, and he was really frustrated. By the time he showed up, he was just really exasperated. He was telling us the story about how frustrating it was and how mad he was. And, and I'm just giggling away already. You know, I'm just in my own little world. And he thought I was giggling at him and his misfortune. And he said, at one point, he, he stopped setting up and he's like, Rick, I swear to God, if you don't stop laughing at me, I'm going to drag you out in the, backyard, in the back alley and I'm just going to beat the crap out of you which made me even more nervous. <laughs> so now I'm laughing so hard, I can't even hardly breathe enough to say, no, I'm not laughing at you, I'm just nervous. So if I get into a situation in a classroom where um, I've tried to connect with the student, I've tried to um, say, you know, what you have to say is important, you're important, and that really doesn't relate, and there's still... Um, trying to undermine the environment to keep anybody from taking that risk, I might start telling a story and I might tell a story like that one. And uh, about how that, well, that that story with that student who is, uh, I told him, you know, I, I threw up or whatever, and, or not didn't throw up, that I would get scared and I would giggle or whatever. And I, that's how I left that moment with that student. Well, you would get to Friday and every, you know, in most schools that I work in, you have an opportunity to represent for your class at a poetry slam with the entire school on Friday afternoon. And so this student had been chosen by his class to be one of the 
poets to rep for their class. And I was setting up for this assembly myself because I'm also going to play music. And uh, this, um, I, I hear a, a TA outside this bathroom and she's like, do you need me to call your mom? Do you want somebody to come get you? And I hear this little kid in the bathroom at the back of the stage <clears throat> and he's just throwing up. And then I hear his little voice going, no, don't call my mom. I'm just nervous. And this was this little kid. And he was so committed to sharing his slam that he was putting himself through all of this. And honestly, you've heard stories, Ozzy Osbourne, and lots of uh, artists will say they've thrown up like before every show their entire career. They've been doing this for 40 years. Um, it's such a common thing for us to physically feel um, the manifestation of fear and insecurity of taking that creative risk. But if I'm going to tell a story like that, I might be physically gesturing to the students um, as I tell that story, like theoretically or sometimes literally pointing to them as I'm making a point. Like some of you will understand how scary this is for the student, but I'm pointing at the student in that class, but as if I'm just gesturing. You know, some of you know how much it takes. Some of you know that sense of fear and the nerves and the insecurity, like, some of you know, like your, your mind is filled with like, what if somebody laughs or makes fun of me? Now, I'm not out to shame or to embarrass any student, student um, because I want everyone to have a breakthrough if possible, including the one who's like making the, the environment the most unsafe for everybody else. But you know what? If you're not at that place where you're willing to step into that, I can't make you. And I, I've realized that also over the years. I I can't make anybody do anything, but I can and I absolutely will not allow you to make the, un, the environment unsafe for others. If I do, I'm a terrible leader. If, if I allow that, I'm a terrible teacher and it's hard and I don't think there's a, a rule that works. It's moment by moment, individual by individual. Um, and there are definitely, for me, a few classes I, should, I wish I could go back to and do over again, knowing what I know now, but that's life, right? So if I have to, and I, I can only think of one time, like I, yeah, I, I can only think of one time where I had to say, hey, you know what? I need you to just go to the office and, uh, and hang out there for, you know, five minutes and maybe tell the VP that uh, that Rick sent you there because you hate slam poetry so much you can't handle it or whatever. I think there's only been one student. I've been doing this for like 20 years. So for the most part, if you recognize that in all of these environments, whether it's a recording studio and somebody's in there going, rah, 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 just go for it and just yell and scream. And, and you realize they're trying to help, but they're not helping, but they're trying to help. It's like we're all trying to get to the same place and find that space that makes it um, a supportive environment for everybody, no matter who they are. Now, we don't all know. Some people aren't really good at telling you what they need. I think one of my favorite moments, I, I watched that Some Kind of Monster documentary where Bob Rock, the um, producer, was working with Metallica to do their um, one of their albums. And uh, this part, I just thought that was a fascinating documentary because I think they probably started making that documentary to make Metallica look cool. And what ended up happening was they were all breaking down and and going into therapy and they hired a therapist and they're all trying to talk about their feelings and learn how to communicate with each other as 40 year old men where to the large part they're just acting like children and they don't know how to like um, talk about things constructively and they're trying to learn how to like use words to communicate it was really fascinating and I don't think this part made it into the actual documentary, but I saw it on YouTube years later, and there was this excerpt where Bob Rock, the producer, recognizes that Lars, the drummer, needs what he needs as an artist to get the best performance. And so they're playing it, this song, and he's trying to drum to it. 
and he's making mistakes and he's getting really down on himself and he's getting down on the song and he's getting more frustrated and more angry. And so Bob comes out to him and he's like, hey, man, you know, take a drink of water, just relax. Like you're an amazing drummer and you've got this. And, and he just, he's talking really supportive and encouraging and really just like putting him at ease. Just relax. You know, it's, we got this. You're going to get it in the next take or two. Like we've, you know, then there's another part where he's working with Kirk, the guitar player, the lead guitar player. And then he's doing these solos for the song. And there's this part where Bob, you know, is like, come on, man, like, lay into it. Let's hear what you got. And they do a few takes. And finally, Bob looks at one of the other, maybe the other members of the band. And he's like, talking right in front of Kirk. And he's like, what, what is his problem? He's saying to the other members of the band, what, like, doesn't he know how to play this guitar? Or does he hate this song? Or what's the problem? And Kirk's like, no, I like the song. What are you talking about? He's like, because you're you're playing like crap. You know, you're not, you, I don't even know if you know how to play this guitar, but like, and he pushes and pushes until Kirk's so mad. He's like, push that button. I'm going to show you what I can do. And he just lays into it and he just records this ferocious guitar part, the solo. And it was showing how the producer realized this musician needs somebody to really create a, a very nurturing and soft and supportive space for them to relax and and produce their best performance where this artist needs somebody to push and push and push until they're uh, really riled up and that's where you get your best performance and I think it's not really that extreme often but I think for some students it's the same thing. It's like, what does this student need in this moment to step out and take this creative risk? What do you need? Because a lot of times I think we find ourselves, we're surrounded by people who are not providing us with the environment or the encouragement or the push that we need to be our best, our, our most creative self. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing for us to start to do some self-evaluation, start looking at your environment, start looking at the people that are in your life. Uh, there, you know, for a lot of um, for for a lot of the the things that I do, because I I basically my a life as an artist can be very a solitary. You're writing by yourself. You're writing, you're rehearsing your songs. If you're a solo artist, you're writing your songs by yourself. Um, a lot of us just economically, um, for economic reasons, we have to record ourselves. And there's just a lot of solitude. If you're a painter, you're often painting by yourself. And you have these very few moments where you have, you know, people interacting with you. The other side of it is like a lot of us, we are working together. If you're in theater, if you're uh, in a band, if for myself, I'm always in schools these days, you know, doing artist residencies, involving hundreds of students and dozens of staff members uh, involved in the creative process. And it becomes really important to recognize what do we all need? to produce our best and to be our best and to, um, yeah, to be mindful of how our words and our actions are really important for those around us. And if you find yourself in a toxic environment, if you want to be your best, if you want to produce your best, you've got to either deal with that person or you need to get them out of that environment, out of your environment. And there's not a formula for doing that. There's not a, um, it's, it's you tapping into your creative talents, gifts and abilities, experience and education, everything that you've got and saying, you know what, this is how it's got to work for me right now. And we all know why it's important, right? Being creative is a mindset. It's a lifestyle. And it's a lifestyle that produces energy that empowers resiliency and the confidence to face the challenges that life throws at us. And it's that process that creates the momentum. And it's that momentum or lack of momentum. <sighs> I hate to admit it, but sometimes I'm just like, 
trudging uphill in a snowstorm like my grandparents going to school. Uh, but it's that whole process that I want to share with you through these episodes. And so if you have any comments or questions or stories of your own, I'm always uh, excited to hear about that. Being Creative has started a Patreon channel uh, for those people who have expressed some interest all five of you I think two of the five of you who listen to this <laughs> expressed some uh, interest or willingness to support the show in some small way so being creative is now a patreon um, channel as well look I really appreciate everybody's support and your encouragement and your comments and everything else because uh, remember hey you're capable of infinitely more than you give yourself credit for. So until next time.